I should like to call your attention this morning to that account of the coming and the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the second chapter, which we read at the beginning and emphasizing particularly verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there is nothing more important for us as we meet together like this on a Christmas morning than that we should realize the significance of what has happened. There is no question everybody will agree that as Christian people we are having to fight for the true meaning of Christmas uh, during these years through which we are passing. As Christian people we are having to fight for many things at the present time with a lowering morality and ideas of conduct and behavior with the whole state of the world, we are having to fight for the precious things of the gospel. And in particular, we are having to fight, I say, for the true and essential meaning of what is celebrated on Christmas Day. The world instigated by the devil tries to take hold of everything that we have and to pollute it, prostitute it, and to turn it to its own ends and objects and purposes. And it is doing so in a very obvious manner at the present time with this great event that we celebrate on this particular day. It's therefore more than ever necessary that we should remind ourselves that we are here to celebrate the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We are here to celebrate the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's what we are here to do. God hath visited and redeemed his people. This was the crucial moment, the crucial event in God's great purpose and plan of salvation, which he ordained before the foundation of the world and which he began to prepare for as we read the story in the Old Testament. But here is the crucial moment. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. That's, that's the meaning of this. That's what we are here to do this morning. We wouldn't be here but for this. We are what we are by the grace of God. And the grace of God has come in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then let us remember that, and let us remember this, and emphasize this also. That our salvation does depend upon this fact. The world would turn it into a teaching. The world would turn it into a theory, into a philosophy. Talks about the Christmas spirit. There is no such thing. There's no such thing as the Christmas spirit. There is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, We mustn't allow them to turn this into the Christmas spirit because there's nothing in it. It isn't true. The world talks about it every year. Goodwill, brotherhood, friendship doesn't last. It isn't true. It's artificial. We are concerned, I say, with facts. We must never cease to remember that Christianity is not a teaching only. First and foremost, it is God's action. 
And therefore it is a question of fact. God hath visited and redeemed his people. He has done something. It belongs to history. That's why we call this 1962 this morning. Because it is 1962 years since God did send his son forth into the world and the word was made flesh. Now that's the thing I say that we must never lose sight of, never lose hold of. We are not offering a teaching to the world. We are offering a person, a literal person, God and men, two natures in one person. God's way of salvation, God's way of making salvation. It isn't a teaching the world needs. It needs to believe in what God has done once and forever in and through his only begotten dearly beloved son. Well now, there I say are the things which we must never lose sight of. That is the general message of Christmas. But I want to call your attention to one particular aspect only of it this morning. For our meditation, this is an endless theme. And thus, Christmas by Christmas, we look at different aspects of it in particular. Now, the one I would like to suggest to you this morning, and uh, to put to you in order that you may think about it and meditate about it this day and these coming days, is this. Why do you think, when the Son of God did come into the world, when God sent his only begotten Son into the world, why did he come in the particular way and manner in which he did come? Have you ever pondered that? We surely should. The facts make us do so. This record which I have read this morning uh, compels us to do so. Why are these details given us? And above all, I say, why did it happen in that particular way? Why was he born of a virgin, for instance? Why wasn't he born by the natural process? Why was this exceptional thing done, born of a virgin? Instead of having a human father and a human mother and coming into the world in that way. Why? That's one question, but take some others. Why was he born of a virgin who, though she belonged ultimately to the royal house of David, most certainly was not a royal personage, just an ordinary simple maid? Why was he born of someone like that instead of of some great queen? These are the facts. The question is, why are these the facts? And then, still more important, why was he born in a stable? Why wasn't he born in a palace? Some great house, some magnificent building. Why a stable and cattle and mangers? Why wasn't he born into the midst of pomp and circumstance and glory and magnificence? Have you ever pondered these questions? Why was he born into extreme poverty? Joseph and Mary couldn't afford a lamb that could only offer two turtle doves. Why do you think when the Son of God did come into the world, he came into such a poor family and endured and experienced such abject poverty? Instead of being born into great wealth and affluence. And take a final question. Why, when the Son of God was in this world, did he live such a humble life? Why did he come and work as an ordinary workman, an artisan, a carpenter? 
Why wasn't he some great philosopher, some outstanding teacher in some great academy or university? Why all this? Now, I, I suggest that the very record, the, the collection of facts given to us and emphasized everywhere, uh, should make us face these questions. It's quite obvious, isn't it, that this was something which was quite deliberate. He could have come in many other different ways. With God, nothing is impossible. So that the fact that he did come in this particular way and into this peculiar, particular set of circumstances is obviously something that was done very deliberately. And the question I'm asking is, why was it done in this way? Now, here you see we have again an example of uh, the tendency uh, to be so familiar with the facts that we never look at them. You can see things so frequently that you've never seen them at all. They're always there. You take them for granted. You never stop to say, why this? Why that? And here it is with these facts with which we are all familiar. Everybody in the world, however ignorant of the Christian message, probably knows something about these details. The stable, the manger, and all the rest of it. But what's the meaning? Why did God do it in this way? Why did his son come, I say, into this particular set of circumstances? Well, now, all I want to do for the encouragement of our meditation this morning is to suggest some answers to that question. It's obviously of vital importance. So the first principle that emerges, I'm suggesting, is this. That there is in all this an element of condemnation. Does that disappoint anybody? Do you feel one shouldn't say a thing like that on Christmas morning? Well, my dear friends, if you feel like that, that means that you've got what the world calls the Christmas spirit. And you're not facing these things according to the Holy Spirit. We've got to look at all these things in the light of the teaching of the scriptures and the light of the spirit upon them. And whether we like it or not, the coming of the Son of God into the world, the birth, birth of the babe of Bethlehem, is the greatest condemnation of the human race that is conceivable. It's a condemnation in general. He came because it is the only way whereby we can be saved. Our condition as a human race is such that nothing else can save us. The law couldn't, even the law of God couldn't. All the teaching given couldn't save. His very coming, I say, is a pronouncement of the fact that mankind in sin and as the result of the fall is completely hopeless and helpless, guilty and condemned. But now I'm concerned this morning not so much to deal with that general condemnation as with particular forms of this general condemnation which to me are of great significance and particularly at the present time. What is it? Well, let me put it like this. You see, this way in which he came is so different from what we'd ever have expected. Indeed, it is the exact opposite of what we'd expected. We all would have expected him to have come in a very different way, wouldn't we? We would have expected the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, to have come, I say, into a great palace amongst great people, that would have been our expectation. He, he comes in the exact opposite way. Why? Well, it is, I say, in order to deal with what is ultimately the greatest cause of all our troubles, and that is our pride. 
Pride was the cause of the original sin. The tempter came, you remember, and said, Hath God said? Is God keeping you down? Is God standing between you and self-expression? Ah, God is afraid that you'll become as he is. He appealed to pride, and men fell. Well, pride has been the cause of our ills and troubles ever since. It began our evil course. It is the cause of its continuance. So, in his coming in this particular way, we see an utter condemnation of our pride. Let me show it to you in different ways. His coming in the way in which he came is a terrible condemnation of our fatal belief in ourselves. It's a condemnation of our belief in humanity. It is a condemnation of our belief in the human race. What man likes to believe about himself, of course, is this, is that he is capable of solving his problems. Man likes to believe in a process of development and of evolution. It's been the popular theory for the last hundred years. Oh, yes, they say there have been troubles in the world in the past, but it's all right, they say. We are moving out of it. We are advancing. We are developing. Man's coming to his own, and he's developing and advancing, and eventually he will arrive at a complete and entire perfection. That is the common belief of humanity today. Man believes in himself, in the innate possibilities of perfection that are in himself. And all he needs is a certain amount of time, millions of years perhaps, but that's immaterial. He's got it in him, and he's going to develop. Given knowledge and learning and science, he's going to. He's stretching out. He's going to arrive. He's got his salvation within himself, and he's capable of solving all his problems. Do you know the answer to that? It is the birth of this helpless babe in the stable in Bethlehem. What does that tell me? Well, what it tells me is this, that humanity, since the fall of Adam and as the result of sin, is completely hopeless. That the human race cannot be salvaged, it cannot be improved. That if it had billions and billions and billions of years, it would never redeem itself. Humanity is lost and damned in Adam. There's only one way of salvation. It is a new humanity. And here he is, the first, the head. The second Adam. The last, the second men, the last Adam. That's what that babe is telling us. It's no use trusting to the development and progress of the human race. It's doom. And history is proving that, of course. That's the terrible fallacy in the world today. That men are blind to the facts that are staring them in the face. All the tension in the world and the war and the fighting and the distrust. It's all because of men in sin. And he'll never be improved. We need a new humanity. So God starts a new humanity. His son comes into the world and takes unto him and into himself human nature. Perfect. That was why he was born of a virgin. The Holy Ghost came upon her. He takes a perfect humanity and he links it to the Godhead. Here is the beginning of a new race. So you see, it is an utter and a complete condemnation of our pride in man, in human nature, in the innate possibility of development that lies in fallen men. It condemns it completely and finally. But secondly, 
It's a complete condemnation of our fatal belief in outward show and pomp and splendor. That's a manifestation of sin always. That's how we tend to estimate greatness, isn't it? Pomp, show, splendor, ornamentation. It's innate in human nature, but you see it's the result of the fall. It's the result of sin. That's why the Apostle John uh, says to us, Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. These are of the world. They're not of God. But that's what the world worships. Your newspapers are full of it. Your magazines are still more full of it. That's the human, the worldly way of estimating true greatness. Outward shown, pomp and splendor. But when the King of kings and Lord of lords came into this world, he wasn't born in a palace with all its draperies and refinements and fineries and gold and silver. He was born in a stable with the cattle and the straw and his little body was placed in a manger. Here is the King of kings, I say, and Lord of lords, Son of God. He comes in that way to unmask the folly of our foolish belief and worship of outward show and mere appearance. In the same way, in the third place, he comes to condemn our belief in wealth. The man of the world says this morning, money is power. And everybody wants money. That's the meaning of the mania of your football pools. Money. Must have money. If I only have money, I can do everything. Food, drink, travel, splendor, anything I want. The world worships money. There's no question about it. It's never worshipped money more than it has this morning. Believing that if it has money and wealth, it's got everything. Well, I needn't keep you. He was born into terrible poverty. Extreme poverty. You see the condemnation? The very way in which he came is a condemnation of the things that the world values most of all. The thing in which it takes pride, the things after which it lusts. The very way in which he came, in and of itself, before he's spoken a word, it condemns it all and unmasks it. For the hollow sham that it is. Well then take another. Look at the world's belief in strength and power and might. It's always believed in these things. Great empires. Kingdoms. The imperial idea and notion. Armies. Armaments. Bombs. Rockets. Power. All the trouble in the world this morning is due to this. So you've got your two great rival groups. Power. Higher and higher and higher and higher. Up they go. Power. And how we've prided in it. It's the symbol of men in sin. Men as the result of the fall. With his armies marching and his bands playing. Symbols of power. And his aeroplanes roaring. And his guns and cannons firing. Power. The world worships power, it always has done, since the fall. And the answer to it is this, 
that the God of all power comes into the world as a helpless babe who has to be handled and his little body placed in a manger. You see how God is condemning everything that the world in its madness worships in the very way in which he sent his son into the world. And lastly, the thing, the last thing that I'd mentioned is that his coming in this way is an utter and a final condemnation of the world's belief in wisdom. Philosophy. These are the people who are being worshipped today, philosophers. They are regarded as our greatest men. Doesn't matter how they live. Doesn't matter though they advocate experimental marriage and various other loose moral ideas. Doesn't matter. They're great men. They're great thinkers, we are told. The world worships wisdom. It always has done. Philosophy, human understanding. This is the thing we need, they say. They've ridiculed the gospel. They're no longer Christians, of course not. They're too brilliant, too intelligent, too wise. They've got reason. They don't believe in substance and sentiment. They've got reason, understanding. So the great philosopher is the great man to be admired and to follow. But when the Son of God was in this world, he didn't occupy a chair of philosophy. He made chairs. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He was never in a school. That was the taunt that the Pharisees heard, hurled at him. How is this man learning, never having learned? Who is this? Who is this who's teaching? He's not been through the usual channels. This man hasn't been taught. How can he possibly understand? What does he know about thought? What does he know about life? What does he know about religion? What does he know about God? He's a worker, a carpenter. Born in a stable, brought up in poverty, worked with his ends as a carpenter until he was 30 years of age. Well, there it is, you see. It is a complete and a final condemnation of everything that the world prizes most this morning, all that it holds on to and admires and glories in above everything else. The very way in which he came condemns it all. It condemns our wrong and our false thinking. But thank God it does something positive also. There is an element of instruction in it as well as of condemnation. It teaches us to think in the right way. It teaches us to think God's thoughts. Indeed, I always feel that the true commentary on these facts that we are looking at is that great word there in the 55th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah where God says, My thoughts are not as your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and your thoughts and my ways and your ways. Here it is all perfectly illustrated. So let's look at it positively for a second. What is God teaching us here positively? Well, he's teaching us at once, isn't he, that the moment you come to this realm, you're coming to something which is altogether different. The Christian way, the Christian life, everything about it is completely different. The moment you enter this realm, there's a complete change. All things have become new. There's nothing which is the same as it is in that other realm without Christ and without God. The first thing we have to realize as we approach the Christian message and the Christian gospel is this, that it is something that is entirely removed from all that we've been accustomed to. It is the exact antithesis, the complete opposite. 
That is because man in sin has been guilty of the foolish things which I've been enumerating. So positively we are taught this. That what matters is not outward appearance. But the heart. Outward appearance. Stable. Cattle. Straw. Manger. Poverty. Doesn't matter my friends. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead. See. Outward appearance doesn't matter. Oh, it's the heart, it's the person that matters. You look on with a worldly eye and you see nothing there but a poor woman having an illegitimate child. That's what the world says about it. And the people occupying the rooms in the inn are not making way for her. You see a very sad and pathetic story. That's all you see and no more. But look with the eye of faith, look with a spiritual eye. And what you see, outward appearance doesn't matter. God has come. In the person of his son. Man looketh on the outward appearance as a word in the Old Testament. But God looketh upon the heart. And this babe when he'd grown up and began to teach. He looked at the Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law one afternoon. And he said. You are they that justify yourselves before men. But God seeth the heart. For that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. Oh, let us learn this lesson. It's not the outward appearance that matters. It's the inner man of the heart. That's a great lesson taught us there. Here's another. That ultimately material values really don't count at all. The only values that are worth talking about are the spiritual values. Material, well, they're essential, yes, but they're very unimportant. It's the spiritual that matters. You look at a little body there, but oh, what's inside it? It's the spiritual content that matters, not the material form, not the appearance. And that applies right through the whole of life. The world is as it is because it's worshipping material values. And the spiritual values are being forgotten. Housing, wealth, salary, the whole world. This, is, this runs right through every stratum of society. It isn't only the wealthy that worship wealth. The poor want it quite as much. Their only trouble is that the others have got it and not they. They'd like to have it. Everybody wants it. Material values. If only we can get these, they think. Here's the condemnation of it all. It's the spiritual that matters. The things that are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. It's the spiritual that matters and not the material. And so I can sum it up by saying this. That what we are being taught there is that it isn't time that matters. It's eternity. He comes into time only for a while. He's come from eternity. He's going back to eternity. He touches earth here. He comes down, he goes up. He's only here for a moment, as it were. Time doesn't matter. It's eternity that matters. But the world's living for time. The world thinks that time alone matters. That's because it doesn't know anything about the eternal world. The world doesn't want to be killed by bombs. It's fighting. That's the whole fallacy of that entire movement. It's living only for this world and for the material. It knows nothing about the spiritual and the eternal. But that little babe lying in that manger is proclaiming eternity. 
to a world that has become enslaved by time. Very well, that is how God would have us think. So let me put it in a third, last general principle in this way. He came in this particular way and men are not only to condemn our foolish thinking, to teach us how to think after God, but he comes to point and to teach the way of salvation. Listen, the weakness of that babe's body doesn't matter at all. What matters is the God that is in him. The body is weak. He's helpless. He could do nothing for himself. He had to be attended. He had to be moved, carried about, and so on. But you see, that doesn't matter. The weakness of the body is not the thing that matters. It is the God that is in this body that matters. Now, it is the same with us. He tells us there from the manger that our weakness doesn't matter at all. This is the great message of justification by faith, isn't it? We can do nothing. We can't keep the law. We can't live a good life. We can't imitate Christ. We can't please God. His message is this. It's all right. I've come because you can't. What matters is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The weak body, but the God in the body. The weak men, the failing men, but God in Christ coming and redeeming and giving us strength and power. It isn't our strength. It isn't our goodness. It isn't our works that can ever save us. It is what he does. It is his coming in the power of God. He proclaims that. So, you see, it comes to this in the end, doesn't it? The supreme thing in life and in this world is our relationship to God. Nothing else. He's born in a stable with the cattle and the straw and the manger and the poverty. Oh, but it doesn't matter. It is his relationship to God that matters. That's the thing to look at. You see, our Lord later on taught the people that. He said, don't be like the nations of the world. They are always asking, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? And wherewithal shall we be clothed? He said, don't be like that. Your heavenly Father, he says, knows all your needs and he'll supply them. Listen, he says, seek ye first, not food and drink and clothing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. That's it. The first thing, the most important thing, the vital thing, the ultimate thing, is our relationship to God. That was the thing that was mattered there in that manger. His relationship to God, not outward circumstances. It's the same with us. Whatever your circumstances are this morning, my friend, whether they're good or bad, I say that isn't the important thing. I don't care whether you're wealthy or poor, learned or ignorant, a great philosopher or an ignoramus. It doesn't matter. What I ask is this in his name. What is your relationship to God? What's your spiritual condition? What is the state of your soul? So here's my final word. If we desire to enter into the kingdom of God, if we desire to inherit the glory of the kingdom of God, if we want to be the children of God, there's only one way for it. We've got to become as little children. We've got to cease to have confidence in humanity, cease to have confidence in pomp and show and power and wealth and brains and understanding and philosophy and human ability, except he be converted and become as little children. 
Indeed, we must be born again. A kind of Bethlehem has got to happen to all of us. We've got to become utterly helpless. We've got to become completely hopeless. We've got to abandon ourselves to God and his power. We must not only become as little children, we must be born again. We must say farewell to everything we've prided in and gloried in. We must abandon ourselves to God. And he will work in us this second birth. He will put into us this new humanity which he has started in his own son. And we shall become the children of God and heirs of the everlasting and eternal glory. That's what he tells us. Forget all about stable circumstances. Everything that's merely to bring us down. Become as little children. He must be born again. And then you become children of God. And because children, then heirs, heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. And though you may have to live in this world in poverty and shame, as an unentity in the world knowing nothing about you, the day will come when you shall live with him and reign with him and all things shall be yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God. That's God's way. Oh, may we all have grace to see it, to understand it, to receive it and to submit ourselves entirely to it.